0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship, especially if you are new or visiting. Uh, We do want to welcome you. We'd love to meet you, so please uh, come and find me after service is over or any one of the other elders. Uh, Sunday mornings are also a good time for any of us here to connect. Any questions you have, comments, concerns, maybe something just hanging in your mind, maybe something that you're going through, uh, please do not hesitate to speak with one of your elders and pastors. Now, at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or Bible underneath the chair in front of you, and turn to the book of Luke. And we are in Luke chapter 18 and verse 18 as we continue our study through Luke. Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 27 is our passage today. And that passage can be found on page 877. If you are using a church Bible, page 877. before we uh, look at our text, would you please uh, join me in prayer? Uh, Father, we thank you for this time of worship, and and now as we come to your Word, um, in the preaching of it and by the power of the Holy Spirit, would you glorify your Son in our minds and in our hearts so that nothing else would compare to Him? Father, we're so prone to believing things that aren't true and so prone to treating the truth as Uh, if it were not true. And so would you please help us, God? Would you show us how much it is that you love us? Would you give us the perspective we need to live rightly? And would you continue to save us in your power? It's in Jesus' name we ask, amen. Uh, Who is it that enters into the kingdom of God is the question of this passage uh, and also the couple before this passage. Who is the one that gets eternal life? who is the kind of person uh, that takes hold of Jesus Christ. And we come to a pretty famous passage here about a rich uh, young ruler and his interaction with Jesus and how Jesus calls him to leave all and to follow him. And how this young man, who seems to have everything in this life, he ends up walking away from Jesus with sadness. It's a really a tragic text. But so crucial is this account to our understanding of the kingdom of God and who it is that will enter into it. So crucial is this account that it is found in Matthew and it is found in Mark in addition to being found here in Luke. It's three times found in back-to-back-to-back books. And in each of these three locations, this scene with this rich young ruler is bound to the previous scene of little children in the arms of Jesus. And that is not by accident. The contrast couldn't be any more stark. We, we have helpless, uh, trusting infants in humility, wholly dependent upon someone else and not themselves. The kingdom of God belongs to these. And then we have the rich, uh, the young, the powerful. I mean, these are the three qualities everyone seems to be chasing. I get ads for all of them all the time. Oh, to be wealthier. Oh, to be young again. How to be more successful. Uh, The ones who chase these uh, or find their identity there, uh, the independent, can-do-it-alls, they have a difficult, if not impossible time of even entering into the kingdom of God. Uh, The contrast is the point, just as it was with the Pharisee and the tax collector in the passage previous to the children. One is so self-sufficient, self-reliant, proud, looking down upon other people. The other is broken, contrite, penitent, can't even look upwards, pleading for mercy. Jesus says only one of these is justified. These contrasts that Luke is giving to us are to hammer in the point of who the kingdom of God belongs to, who is the one who is justified, who is it that gets eternal life. And it may be that this particular account is actually the most challenging and yet also uh, might be most clarifying for us. In understanding ourselves and where we currently stand in relation to the kingdom of God. Would you please look with me in verse 18? And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. I want you to notice first uh, the quality of this young man who seems to have everything going for him. There's a certain pedigree to this person, this tangible feeling of excellence, per se, and, and really pretty holistically so, in terms of career, uh, assets, morality, and even the spiritual inquiry of Jesus. There's, there's a certain caliber about him, and yet he is still desperately seeking for something more. He has everything, and yet he is in want. Now, in terms of career position, the word used to describe him is ruler, and, and we don't know what kind of ruler he is, but that very term denotes a certain authority about him, a certain level of responsibility. Whether this was in the synagogue or whether it was in another area of expertise, this man has proven himself to the degree that he has been given this kind of position. We know from Matthew's account in chapter 19:22 that this man is young, which seems to only heighten that level of capability. For these kinds of qualities are not necessarily known to be characteristic of young men. And so career-wise, position-wise, he has everything going for him and already at such a young age. In terms of assets, this is his personal wealth. We know from verse 23 that this man is not only rich, but is extremely rich. And while the text is not explicit about his net worth, I mean, the word extreme is used as sports, where you take a BMX bike and jump over a canyon. That's extreme. Extreme eating competitions, you eat 72 hot dogs to win that competition. And so his personal wealth is at a different level in addition to his position of authority. Morally speaking, it's not often that those who carry that kind of authority and have that kind of financial power and who are young, these are not usually the ones who are also known to be moral. I mean, think of all the religious, uh, the rich young athletes or or the young celebrities who get wealthy and famous too quickly, Uh, maybe the children of the extremely affluent, and and just think about the temptations that are indicative of youthfulness and means they just bombard them. We've seen the horror stories of what that can do. I mean, think even of older executives who pay hush money, uh, even former presidents, because that money and that power enables them to live a certain kind of life. Now, we have here someone who from their youth and their heart of hearts truly and genuinely believes that I've tried to keep the commandments of God ever since I was a little kid, and I have not broken any of them. And I don't think this young man is necessarily lying. I think he really, really believes it. And from this external perspective, he probably isn't guilty. I haven't cheated on my wife. I haven't murdered anyone or even planned to. I don't steal in all my business dealings. I don't lie. I'm a good son to my mom and my dad. I honor them and have a good relationship with them. Uh, Each of these commandments that Jesus lists are from this interpersonal category of the Ten Commandments, and the young man has been doing very well in his personal interactions with other people. And so we have a young man of great authority, extreme wealth, standout morality. Now even more so, he also sees something in Jesus that a lot of other people in his position and power are not seeing. For whatever reason, the people more drawn to Jesus are not the people in high places. Instead, it's been the lepers, the children, the blind, the maimed, the tax collectors, the harlots, the fishermen who who smell like fish. People who don't think that they are all that, they somehow throng him. But the higher ups, they want Jesus out of the picture. And in Mark's account in chapter 10 of his book, it actually tells us there that this young man doesn't just come to Jesus. But he runs up to Jesus and kneels before him at Jesus' feet to ask him this question concerning eternal life. Now, the Pharisees, the elite, the power players, they want Jesus dead. So if you care about friends in high places, you don't run to Jesus and fall at his feet. You do it at night like Nicodemus did in John chapter 3 where no one can see you. But you don't do it in front of a crowd where people can But this young man, again, there's something about him. Not only is he unconcerned with what people think of him, he recognizes something in Jesus. He sees and he understands that this man right here is the one to have the answer for the very thing that I am seeking with all of my heart. And what is that thing that he's seeking? I want to know what I must do to inherit eternal life. You see this young man, he has it all, and yet he's still left in want. I got money, power, and youth, but I am still lacking. I want life. I want life eternal. What do I do? I want to know what I must do to inherit eternal life. This is his plea. Now, not a lot of people are asking that question today. Not many are even asking this question Uh, at all, especially when they have all of this going for them. People don't usually run uh, and bow down to Jesus when they have all that kind of stuff. I think more people are Googling how to increase my net worth by finding a side gig or how to look young again, how to make my neck less wrinkly, how to be more successful in my career. That's what people are asking. How do I rise up the ranks? But this young man has all of that and he's on his knees before the feet of Jesus. There's a, a certain quality pedigree a caliber to this young man i mean isn't this who you want your children to grow up to become you know isn't this when you when you see this i'm gonna set my single friend up with him this is the kind of guy i want my daughter to marry someone accomplished moral legit honest spiritually minded rich and someone who sees something special in jesus with a genuine desire for life eternal. Now, we know, if you've been in the church for a certain amount of time, that no one has really kept the commandments of God. Jesus alludes to this when he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. That redirection to God alone being good should convict our hearts of the lack of goodness therein. And Jesus could have referred to the Beatitudes to challenge this young man in his perception of his own obedience, maybe to awaken his conscience. Oh, really? You think you've kept all the commandments since your youth? How about Matthew 5:27? You've heard that it was said, "You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks looks. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. Have you not had that kind of glance, young man. Jesus could have taken that approach. Jesus could have repeated what he said in Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry, is angry. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, good luck, will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Have you ever been angry with another inside of your heart? Do you really think, young man, that you have kept the commands and from your youth. No one is good but God alone. Jesus could have taken that approach with this wealthy and accomplished young individual because one of the purposes of the law is to show us how much we actually come short of it. One of the grand designs of God's commandments is to show us precisely that we are not all that good, with the effect that we might be more like the tax collector just five verses earlier in Luke, standing far off, not even lifting our eyes to heaven, beating our chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus could have tried that approach, but he doesn't do that here, even where else where he may have. He doesn't do that here, even if he would be entirely justified to do just that. I suspect, this is just me, I suspect that with a young man like this one, whose mode and mindset might be, I've accomplished everything and I still don't have life. Give me a mountain to climb and I'll climb it. Oh, sin comes from the heart. Well, then I will master my heart. Oh, murders from within? I will master my emotions. If that is the key to unlocking eternal life, give me something I can accomplish. Tell me what I must do and I will do it. And so Jesus, I think, doesn't use the commandments here to awaken this young man's conscience and condemn him. Instead, he takes a different approach with him, and we see it in verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. You know, Jesus uh, has not invited a lot of people to leave all and to come and follow him so explicitly and so personally like this. He's done this with 12 disciples who make up his inner circle currently, and those are the ones he has extended this kind of invitation to. This is the 13th person, and this young man says, no, because something is too entrenched within his heart to let go of. Notice that Jesus doesn't give this man a mountain to climb or a feat to accomplish, or a task to grab hold of, an achievement to aim for, to add to his already impressive resume. Jesus instead is telling this young, affluent ruler something to actually let go of, something to divest himself of, an affection within the heart that needs to die. And there's a famous story from the book, uh, Where the Red Fern Grows, about how to catch a raccoon. I'm sure some of you know it. But the instructions are, you drill a hole in a log, And you drive nails downward into the hole at an angle, and then you drop a shiny object, maybe some tinfoil, maybe a penny, something flashy at the bottom of that hole. And the raccoon will be attracted to that which is shiny and reach its paw into the hole and grab it. But once he grabs it to hold on to that object, the raccoon, of course, needs to ball up its fist or paw, and the width, you can't take it out anymore. It's impossible for the raccoon to slide his hand out of the trap, and the only reason why the trap works is because raccoons are too stubborn to let go of that which shines. All the promise of shiny satisfaction, and yet it is trapped by that desire for the very thing which enslaves it. This is a picture of all kinds of idolatry. Idolatry meaning that which we value more than we value the Lord himself. That's idolatry. We are worshiping something else because something is more important to us than God himself and it absorbs our hearts and it captivates our minds because we think that this one thing can give to me something that God never could. Christianity is not, at the end of the day, something to achieve. It's much more childlike than that. It's much more tax collector like than that. But we have to let go of that which is shiny if we want to be enamored by something much better and by someone much better than that which we originally took hold of. Jesus is telling this wealthy, rich, capable, young ruler, you have to drop it. You gotta loosen your grip on it. And then you come, and then you come and follow me. You get a grip on me. Do you believe that I am greater and better than what you have right now? Now, it's not as if Jesus is trying to give him the short end of the stick. The Son of God uh, never lies, and he's ensuring him you will have treasure in heaven. You know, if you're thinking about treasure, don't worry, you're not going to be on the losing side of this. Just let go. But at the end of the day, this is a test for this young man. Do you really want eternal life? Do you really want life? You feel that lack of it. You have everything, and you're still left and you want. You call me good, teacher. No one is good by God. I'm not denying that I'm good, which means I am. Drop it and come and follow me. Will you trust that I can give you life, life eternal? In a way that your wealth, position, and success will never give to you. What Jesus is doing, and wisely so, and compassionately, and lovingly so, is unveiling to this young man and to us as well where our insides and our hearts are really at. And what we really believe about Jesus versus what we really believe about some of our idols. For if our hearts are with the Lord and we see the glory of Jesus Christ as he is, nothing else compares to him at all nothing. Let me reread to you the two parables that Bob read this morning from Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Brothers and sisters, this is not a mountain to climb or a spiritual discipline to achieve. We have a guy searching for treasure and he finds the treasure of his life and nothing else he has compares to it. And he willingly divests himself of everything else for it. He has to, I have to have that. And you know what? It's a steal. It's a bargain. Nothing makes me happier. Another person searching for a pearl. I found the pearl I've been looking for my entire life. Sell it all. I want that pearl. And you know what? It's a steal. And there's joy within his heart. A young man with everything going for him in life and still coming up empty finds the one who heals lepers, makes the blind to see, even the most wicked kind of harlot and tax collector. Even their lives are changed by Jesus. They have life. He's the one who can direct me to everything that I've always wanted and everything I've been searching for. I will do anything. I can achieve it. Look at my track record. Give me the obstacle. I'll hurdle it. Give me the mountain. I'll climb it. Sell all that you have. If you believe I'm good, Give it away. Divest yourself of your idolatry. I am God like you so addressed me. Come and follow me. True treasure in a kingdom that will never expire. And you have me. And it is with that one simple single sentence that Jesus surgically unveils this young man's heart and what is at the center of it. There are a lot of people who want to add Jesus to their already filled lives. But not many who see that value where Jesus alone is all I ever need because I believe that he is more than enough to fill all of my wants and my desires with himself. And you can almost hear the hope rush out of this young man's lungs. Anything but that, Jesus. Anything else but that. Because this raccoon just can't let go. And it's here that the delusion of morality and the shell of being spiritually minded, it just pops. His heart is exposed. And this is sadly the last that we hear of this young man who seemed to have everything going for him. And we even saw in Jesus something a lot of people didn't see, so much so that he ran to him and fell at his feet and asked him about life and life eternal. It's the last we hear about him because he can't let go of his life. The very first commandment of the Ten Commandments of which Jesus fired off from the bottom of the list, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness honor parents. The very first in that list of ten is, you shall have no other gods before me. And that is frankly the most important one. And the grandest of invitations that Jesus extends to this young man, be my disciple." follow me, have me, is rejected because there is another God in this man's heart that he will not cast aside for the only true one. What Jesus here is asking for is the simple childlike trust that Pastor Dave talked about last Sunday, which infants have. I mean, you can shine all kinds of flashy things in front of them, and it will distract them for a little bit. But what a kid, child wants most, what a baby wants most is mom and his dad. I mean, you could put a Lamborghini in front of a toddler. Cool. Mommy. Because there's nothing better than to be in those arms. And yet it is the simple kind of trust that this young man cannot have. The, the irony of the kingdom of God is this. The ones like kids who have nothing, they actually lack Nothing. The kingdom is precisely for one such as these. And the irony, the one who has it all lacks the one thing that really amounts to everything, which is that faith. And the question for us this morning that this text confronts us with is in your heart of hearts, do you really think that Jesus is worth it? Now, let's just say you had this kind of extreme wealth The answer, simple. Take the world. Give me Jesus. For he alone can give to me what no one and nothing else can, which is life and life eternal. If you believe that with that childlikeness, it's easy to drop it all. The treasure hunter in his joy, the pearl merchant in his joy, the Christian in his joy or her joy, we want Jesus. And the rich young ruler can't even say a word in response but the text says, when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. J.C. Ryle writes this, the worst chains are those which are neither felt nor seen by the prisoner. If he only felt those chains, if he only knew that they were chains, he would cast them off. If he only let go of that which is shiny at the bottom of that hole, he would open his hand quickly and take hold of Jesus instead. Is there something in your heart, brothers and sisters, that is too shiny to let go of, to wholeheartedly follow Jesus Christ? Maybe it's a benchmark you need to hit. Maybe it's a person you have to have that you can't imagine life without. Maybe it's a dream for your future that isn't quite coming to fruition, so it's going to captivate all of your mind, heart, and soul because I'm never going to have the life I want unless I get this. Maybe it's a relationship which is ungodly, a spiritually self-destructive romance. Maybe it's a monetary figure you need to have in your account, a college that you need to get your kids into or you need to get into, this athletic goal, this upcoming tournament, that one addiction that no one else knows about but you. Maybe it's a desire for fame or fortune or blah, 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 fill in the blank. Whatever it may be, we usually do have that one thing that is ever so shiny that as much as we hold it near and dear to us, it really has the death grip on us more than we do upon it. And yet with that shiny piece in our hands, so afraid to let go of what we think is ever so precious, sad and unfulfilled, when the Son of God is looking you right in the face and saying, you want life? You want real life? Let it go and come and follow me. You know, we can actually pretty easily let go of things that aren't that near and dear to our hearts anyways in the name of Jesus. And, and when we let go of things, we never really cared about uh, that much anyway. We, we feel like we've made so much progress in the faith. But if we're honest with ourselves, there's probably those hard to reach corners that we just keep untouched by Jesus. He can take all this, but this is mine. And, and the invitation to this text here is divest yourself of that come and follow me because you can't really follow me until you do. We can't really enjoy Jesus while we're serving another God. It's, it's literally impossible. You, you, you can't glorify him with your joy in him or secretly fantasizing, fantasizing by another God. And the ones who believe in him and see him in great joy, their cry is always, Uh, take it all and give me Jesus. How does Jesus define eternal life? Well, he prays in John 17, 3. This is his prayer to the Father before he has to do what he has to do. And he prays, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We gotta loosen our grips. Otherwise, we're gonna be those who see him and see some beauty in him and yet still walk away silent and sad because we want to serve two lords in our hearts and not the only true God of all. Now, before we move on, I want you to notice um, this. Notice what this young man doesn't try and do, which I think a lot of people today try and do in their Christianity. Notice that he doesn't object to the demand. He's not trying to reason with Jesus. Well, you know what, Jesus? Does not have to be everything? I notice that you're just not as popular as you used to be. I'm a potential follower. I'm a pretty prominent one at that. How about this? How about if I follow you and I keep my stuff, I know this really great property manager. My mind won't even be on it, but I'll keep it and I'll come to you. How about both, Jesus, instead of either or? He doesn't try to have both. He doesn't try to negotiate because he at least understands in this very moment that the very reason why he was never satisfied with his previous shallow obedience was because underneath it all, he had a competing love in his heart. And he was owned by another master there and he just couldn't leave it. Luke 16, 13, just a couple chapters earlier, Jesus says, no servant can two serve two masters. I mean, he didn't lie, Jesus. No servant can serve two. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. We can't do both at the same time. The context there being God and money. Luke 14, a few chapters before that. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, cannot be my disciple. That's a quote of Jesus' words. Because the principle is such that we must eliminate that which is in our lives that keeps us from giving our lives to Jesus. Whether it's good stuff or bad stuff, at the end of the day, we can only have one Lord. Can idolatry keep us from eternal life? Can the worship of another God keep us out of the kingdom? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the tragedy of a passage like this one. And how do we know? When we can imagine life without Jesus, and then imagine life without money, or imagine life without this, and life without that, and these are way more horrifying to us than that one. Because this master says follow me for security, follow me for joy. Follow me for satisfaction. And Jesus is saying, no, follow me. You can't follow all of them at the same time now, can we? Because we can't trust in and believe in them all. And this young man understands what a lot of contemporary Christians refuse to, that a choice actually has to be made because we are not designed by God, our creator, to find true and lasting peace or joy or satisfaction or fulfillment apart from him. Sin, by definition, is looking at all these things. Stuff, money, relationship, career, blah, 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 applause. Looking at those things to deliver what only God can. That's sin. Whatever that thing is, it is not worth a church family. J.C. Ryle, many are ready to give up everything for Christ's sake except one darling sin, and for the sake of that sin, they are lost forevermore. One leak neglected is enough to sink a mighty ship. One besetting sin obstinately clung to is enough to shut a soul out of heaven. The love of money secretly nourished in the heart is enough to bring a man in other respects, moral and irreproachable, down to the pit of hell. And tragically, he makes his choice and walks away from Jesus with sadness, away from the treasure in the field, away from the pearl of great value, without any kind of joy at all. Verse 24, we find Jesus's commentary. Jesus, looking at him with sadness, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. We find Jesus here with sadness, looking at a man with sadness. This is the king of the universe, seeing this conflict in this young person's heart who decides to keep the tinfoil instead. And his lament is how much of a snare wealth, how much mammon, earthly currency, can so prevent people from entering into the kingdom of God. And the visual is shoving something possibly big through something exceedingly tiny. I mean, a camel, you can ride on it with cargo. I got to ride one in Israel. I forget how many years ago our church went there. It's like riding that camel, into a passageway that you need a magnifying glass to put a string through. It doesn't work. And the image is so memorable so that we won't forget the principle found in the account of this rich young ruler. Now, is it a sin to be wealthy? No, it's not. It's not. Believers have used uh, wealth uh, throughout the centuries to further God's kingdom. Let me read to you this 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6. This is written to a guy who's pastoring a church. He says, as for the rich in this present age, because he's assuming there's rich people at church. As for the, we're all rich. As for the rich people in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Isn't that the commentary for the rich young ruler? That's what's being preached in the local church. It's not a sin to be wealthy. It's a sin to love it though and to trust in it though. And when it's our biggest nightmare to lose it, and therefore we seek after it more so than we do God. I mean, we're not dumb. Nice things are nice. High thread count sheets, you ever try those? Fresh poking, not the previously frozen one. I mean, we're we're not dumb. But we can get to the point where we have so much that we never, ever have to feel desperate again. We never, ever have to feel need again. Then our view of ourselves just starts to skyrocket because pride and wealth, are best friends, they hold hands so much so that we think we're self-sufficient. I got this. We don't even have to pray and blind to our true condition. And that's the most dangerous mentality when it comes to the kingdom of God. That's the problem which prevents entrance into the kingdom. We can literally suffer from success and from abundance, or we can never view ourselves as a child or a tax collector. And therefore, never view Jesus Christ with the same kind of look that they have in their eyes. This is why people like King Agar in Proverbs 30 pray such wise prayer. And we ought to pray the same thing. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is Lord? Lord. Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. I often pray only half of that prayer because it shows me how much more I fear poverty than I do pride. It shows me that I'm taking accounts like the rich young ruler a little bit too lightly. When I pray for the kids, I pray half of that prayer because I see how hard it is on the other half. But do we fear self sufficiency more than we do poverty? I mean, these are the kinds of questions we have to ask ourselves so that we will know where we are at in relation to the kingdom of God. Poverty has never kept people out of the kingdom of God. Never has. The love and preoccupation with growing wealth almost always does. Verse 26, we continue, and we'll close with this. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. You know, the disciples, they're responding because they thought, you know, when you're rich, that means God's blessed you, and it's true to a degree, Um, Jesus is showing them only God can save. The human heart, who's attracted to shiny things, only God can change that heart. And he does that by grace and by grace alone. What must I do to inherit eternal life is already a flawed question. Because someone else has to do something for us. Someone else has to rescue us. Someone else has to come into our heart and change that dead heart. Someone has to literally go into our hands and loosen that grip on that which is shiny. Someone else has to make us new. It is literally a miracle of God that any of us would ever view Jesus as a great treasure to the degree that everything else needs to be sold for him. I mean, the gospel message that we know and love is not only that Jesus became poor, but he, be- he gave his riches to the poor. He dies on the cross For our sin, our idolatries, our spiritual poverty, our believing of sin's lies, our turning away from Him to created things instead, and Jesus, looking at us, He lovingly dies for the sinful ones. But in a stated, He rises from the dead, ascends into heaven, and He shows us who He truly is, and He beckons us to follow Him. Salvation is entirely outside of us, and is a work of Jesus Christ. It's impossible with humanity, but it's not impossible with God. And every Christian, in your heart of hearts, when you hear passages like this, and you're thinking, I don't want that. I want to follow Jesus. That's not because you're all that. That's because God is doing the impossible by his amazing grace within your heart. He's transforming you from the inside out. Now why? Why does Jesus do all this? Hebrews 12 two, for the joy that was set before him, he endures the cross. And so we see this parallel now. Isn't it Jesus who is rich? And doesn't he divest himself of everything to be born in a manger and die on a criminal's cross, to experience death, to rise from the dead, and for what? Reluctantly? No, for the joy that was set before him, he endures the cross. You see that kingdom of God? is like a man who found the treasure. And what is that treasure? Humanity and God coming together again. That what had been separated will never be separated ever, ever again. And the Christian who understands this, we know this is not what I achieve. This is not a mountain I climb. The very fact that I can look upon a Jewish carpenter on a cross and find the most beautiful thing in all of creation shows that a miracle has been wrought right here. And it's only by grace that people can write things like Philippians 3, 7, and 8. This is Paul. But whatever gain I add, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. How can anyone believe that? Impossible with humanity. Only possible with God. Would you please pray with me? Oh, Father, I pray that you would do a work that only you can do. You know, our love for shiny things, is hard to just end it in a, in a minute or a day, or Lord, you know how often it takes years for us to let go of some of the things we've trusted in for decades and I thank you for your grace and your patient mercy God but please help us loosen our grip and show us how much happier we'd be gripping onto Jesus instead I pray for our church that that our church family would hold on tightly to, to Jesus that by your spirit we wouldn't be fooled by the other idols which beckon us to follow them help us not to believe their lies and as we Come to the table this morning where your son's body and your son's blood is given to us. I pray, God, that we will want that more than we want anything else in this passing and fading world. Make it true of us to our joy and to your glory. We ask these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.